I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to another wonderful, uh, we hope wonderful anyway, episode of Slogging It. Uh, absolutely overjoyed this week to, to have someone with us who you will be hearing much more from. Uh, it is clinical psychologist, author, and as I say, uh, future Slogging It contributor, Amy Iziski. How are you, Amy? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? All right, all right. Yeah, I mean, you've basically just heard the three of us bicker with each other for 15 minutes before... Uh, we started, and um, so it's a, it's a it's a view into the uh, the minds of the three morons that somehow put this together. Uh, and it's not a group of minds you want to be looking at too hard. <laughs> no, well, unless she wants to make a fortune, and then she could put three of us on the side oh, yeah. next to each other. Well, yeah, I mean, well, this is something that obviously we'll talk about off air, but and we'll come on to it a little bit more later. But uh, yeah, the idea is that Amy will be joining us periodically to um, talk about things that we've. Um, discuss with guests on the pod and give us a lot more, you know, the three of us do say every week, we are not experts. Uh, we now have an expert, which is uh, wonderful. She's wonderful. She's not scary at all. Um, you know, she lives in Newcastle, but that, can't, I suppose, can't be helped. Um, so, <laughs> moving on to the actual main body of the podcast. Um, I suppose we should start with, who is Dr. Amy Ziski? Uh, can you give us a brief introduction of life before you kind of got into what you do now? Yeah, sure. Um, so, um, I guess I should start um, with university, really, um, and rowing. Uh, so, I started in sport when I was much younger, actually. I was a competitive swimmer. Um, so, I grew up in a very sporty family. Uh, it was very much part of our lifestyle. Uh, my mother was a female footballer. Uh, my okay. father was a footballer as well, uh, not to any kind of professional standard at all, uh, but they were very sporty. My mum did uh, county badminton as well, um, and we were just always quite active, and me and my brother were both swimmers. 
um, for much of our lives. You know, the weekends were about going to the Saturday swimming gala. Um, and then I went to Durham University um, and I saw an option to do rowing uh, in my first week at the Freshers' Fair when you've got all of these options. Uh, and I selected to do rowing because there was a river um, in Durham. <laughs> it seemed a... It's a start, <laughs> isn't it? There's water. <laughs> we'll row on that. Um, and, and for the first year at university, it's great. Uh, I was doing college rowing, so uh, I was a member of Collingwood College, uh, and it was fantastic. They taught me how to row from scratch. I'd never done it before, um, and it was really enjoyable. I met a great group of people through it, um, and really helpful in terms of physical fitness, activity outside of studies, great. Um, and then in, in the last term, the last summer term, I was stroking a boat, so not literally stroking a boat. I was, <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> I mean, interesting I've, heard the, I've heard things about these rowers before. <laughs> yeah. but I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, lovely boat, lovely <laughs> yeah. boat. Be kind to me, boat, be kind. Oh, yeah, so I was sat at the front of the boat, <laughs> um, and we, we won our race in the Hatfield Cup. Uh, it was an eight uh, with eight girls in. And I, I was spotted by the then university coach. Um, and he spoke to our club captain. And he invited me to go for trials for Durham University Boat Club. Um, I, I was kind of a young 18, 19 year old. And I think being spotted, if that's what we're going to call it, uh, was incredibly flattering. Um, it was probably never the plan to, to kind of advance in rowing in any way. I just really enjoyed it, um, but it was flattering. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go along. Um, it was more so flattering because he's, he's a very respected coach. He's very well known in the rowing community. He's been there for years. He's only very recently left. Um, and he was uh, in charge of the GB development squad at the time as well. Um, so Durham is renowned for its uh, rowing scholarships and rowing coaching. Uh, so very flattering. So I went along and I was then invited to row for the university. Um, and it was, it, yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> it, was, it was an interesting journey and we, we might come on to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's two things about rowing that fascinate me. One, well, I say fascinate me, more baffle me. Maybe it's just the way that I'm built, but the idea of getting up at four o'clock in the morning in the middle of December to go and plonk yourself in a flat boat in the middle of an open river, cheers, but no cheers. Uh, I would much rather be there. And so I can't wait for you to explain the, the, the mental kind of fortitude behind that decision. But also then the calluses and bleeding calluses that you guys get that you just go, eh, it's just another day. I just pour some turps on it and off I go to college to kind of do the rest of my day. Like, yeah. I mean, you've got nuts, right? I mean, you, you put yourself through the mill properly to be a, you know, a top rower, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's one of those sports that I think almost enjoys and likes to say, yeah, we're, we're doing this hard, you know, we're, we're really taking this seriously. And the regime was, it was early morning, you know, we were up back of dawn on the water doing a good two three hour session before we'd get to lectures um and you know then at the end of lectures we would be uh doing weights we'd have a weight training session at the end of lectures um and then at the weekends we'd be doing back-to-back -back water sessions on the river we'd travel further into newcastle to do that um for hours it took much of the day up 
Um, and of course, when I then got invited to be a lightweight rower as well, um, you then add in an extra session because you then have to do weight management training as well. So, you know, I'd be running in the middle of the day as well. Um, so it's, yeah, it's excessive. And the calluses are kind of worn as badges of honor, really. You know, yeah. like, this is, this is yeah. how gritty it is. And uh, yeah, it's, it's part of the mentality. How much does that impact, or how much does being a rower, I don't, I, I, we, we'll leave the kind of lightweight stuff for when we, we'll talk about that properly on another, uh, when we talk again, but, um, you know, that, that amount of physical training that you actually have to go through in order to be part of either the college team or the actual university team, which Durham now is probably, along with Oxbridge, one of the top three sport, you know, universities in, in, in certainly in the, in the UK, um, university of old is kind of seen as a rite of passage and you go and you drink a lot and you kind of do what else you do as part of the nighttime scene or whatever as a rower if you know you've got to be out, jumping out of bed at four o'clock in the morning to go down the time um that, that is that something that you miss out on and if so is that something that you look back on and kind of wish you may have done more of yeah absolutely i mean um I, I did feel that I missed out on that. And for that very reason, I went back and did a master's. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Version two of to. university. I just wanted to get battered for three years. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, right, I'll go back and have a year and, and have some fun at this. Um, and my master's year was a, a lot more fun. And I think, you know, my, my personal story, not to go too much into it, but um, it was more atypical in the in the first term when I started university um I I left home you know it was three three and a half hours down down the road um but my mother became uh, diagnosed with breast cancer within that first term wow. so um I I kind of returned home for Christmas holidays to uh, a very different situation mm. um yeah. I was encouraged to go back to, to finish my studies um it was tough you know i i didn't really want to if if i'm honest but mm. you know my parents always had my best interests at heart and they said you know you need to go finish this um so you know i'm very grateful for that um but it it was tough you know i was i was still quite young i was 18 19 it was the first time i'd been away from home and and then i had to manage this situation um and i think that's probably why the rowing was quite helpful for me as well, yeah. uh, in that it provided me with uh, a group, a really solid group, mm. um, where we were in it together. Um, there was coaching staff that can often become surrogate parents at difficult times, um, that can be there to support. Um, and I think I needed a focus. I, I needed to distract myself from what was going on at home. Um, and... It was very helpful, but, you know, just as I speak about in the book, there is an, an acknowledgement now on reflection that as much as it was helpful, it was, it was kind of double-edged. It was a bit of a double-edged sword in that, yes, I was throwing myself into rowing. It gave me a focus. I was distracted. I was busy all the time because I was up at the crack of dawn, lectures, then training on the evening. There was no space to really think or connect with what was going on at home. Um, and that was functional. It worked, but of course there was there was always going to be a fallout of that, really, as well. So, uh, what led you down the clinical psychology path then? And then, also that led to you becoming an author as well. But what was it that kickstarted that 
interest or was it something you always found interesting or does it come about just before uni or yeah sorry I'm gonna sound terrible isn't it but um I was very young when I (laughs) realized I wanted to be a clinical psychologist um can you remember kind of sat in school when I think it was year nine wasn't it before you choose your GCSE subjects and we were encouraged to think about what job do we want to do um and before you chose your options and all that kind of stuff yeah yeah exactly and from that point I wrote on this piece of paper that I wanted to be a chartered clinical psychologist. You know, I, I didn't just want to be a clinical psychologist. <laughs> I wanted to be chartered. And um, ever since then, I, I've just stuck at it. And it, it's, been, it's been the goal, really. Um, and I, I guess, you know, being a psychologist and, a, and an analyst, of course, developmental experiences shape that. Um, and, you know... Again, not, not going into too much detail, but there are things in my own family history that increase awareness of certain things um, that you think, I, I want to know a bit more about that. I think it's mm. personal interest that gets us started with psychology. Um, my, my grandfather was a prisoner of war. There was always something around that, an awareness that something challenging or traumatic had happened um, in the family narrative. Um, and so it, it's that... It started with a personal interest um, from there, and then it just develops organically, really, as you go through your training. I think I wrote I wanted to be in Hollyoaks. On my, uh... <laughs> <laughs> we had a computer system in year nine. I can remember it to this day. The careers advisor used to come in. He was a strange guy. Um, and he came in and he set you up on a computer and basically he asked you one question, which is, do you like maths? <laughs> and if it... We, and if you said yes, it made you want to be an accountant. And if you said no, it made you want to be a firefighter. They were the only <laughs> two jobs that be. people were moving into. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was basically it kept going through answering these questions. Do you like maths? Yes. Oh, you're an accountant, obviously. No, fireman. It was like, I mean, to be fair, it had Hucknall in Nottinghamshire pretty much figured out. Because if you were clever, you're kind of like, yeah, you're, you might be an accountant. If you're not, yeah, fireman, that's fine. But I, it was the assumption that all firemen were thick. <laughs> it made me with that. I mean, well, I, or couldn't count. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose working on the basis that if you're going to run into a burning building, then you, there, there, may, there may be, you know, you know, there may be slight issues somewhere along the lines. Yeah, they, did, they didn't want me there with an abacus going. <laughs> Give me a minute. Yeah, exactly. um, yeah. So talking about the different psychologists that are out there, I mean, obviously you went down the clinical psychologist route from our perspective, you know, we, we often think of because we do and talk a lot about sport, people will often think that sports psychology is really important. Can you talk us through the difference between the two and sort of the relationship as to how those two might often lead uh, hand in hand or go hand in hand together? Yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased that you've asked this question. Um, because the, Why does Eugene always get that? No one ever says that to me. Sure, I write, I write all of these ever. damn questions and no one ever says to me, that's a really good question. Everyone, these two always get the credit. And I, I've, I've, I've had enough. <laughs> right, I'm going to edit that part out. That's fine. Carry on, Amy. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so I'm pleased you've asked that question. I'm really pleased you asked your question as well, Jono. You know, really pleased you've asked that. Um, but uh, it, it's it's a really important thing actually, and um, it's an area where I really hope awareness can increase. Um, you know, 
writing the book that, that we'll come on to, the primary aim of that was to increase awareness of what's going on in sport. Um, and, and we'll come on to that. But um, knowing about the difference between sports psychology and clinical psychology is really important as well. So, um, so the way in which I describe it, uh, and it this this understanding came from talking with a sports psychologist at the English Institute of Sport. We we were kind of rebounding off each other and saying, you know, how can we describe this? And I think the the thing that we came up with is that we can describe ourselves as having like a stable foundation or a platform. And if and if we're in that place, that's great. You know, as, as psychologists, I'm afraid to say, that's what we aim for. You know, we're not aiming for exceptional here, but we're aiming for lives where we're content and it's it's okay. And that that's a really good place to exist. Um, and so in terms of sports psychology and sports and exercise psychology, if you've got that existing stable base, a sports psychologist will try and elevate that for you. So they will try and increase performance um, and use various techniques such as looking at goals, visualization, imagery, um, to really kind of elevate performance if there are blockers to achieving your best and mental blockers. So that, that's what sports and exercise psychologists do in the main. Um, and then with regard to clinical psychology, I, I get involved when that stable base or foundation is a bit shaky or there's some fragility or people are struggling. So when people dip under that stable base and there starts to be something of distress or concern or mental health symptomology, that's when I would get involved as a clinical psychologist. And my aim is to try and get people back to that good place, that, that balanced place in the middle where we're content, we're healthy and we're, we're living life and we're feeling okay. How do people get in touch with you about this? I mean, is this is this self-diagnosed? Is it you know? Is there an intervention that's required from family? How does how does that process start? I mean, you know, do you have people that literally just phone you and say, "Look, I think there's something wrong. Can I come and talk to you?" Or, you know, how how does how do, how do people get in touch? I mean, I mean, goodness, there's a whole variety of ways that people reach me. Um, you know, in the sports industry, there's it's sports doctors that mainly keep an eye on athletes um, that will kind of reach out to me and say, look, we need to refer on. So you can sometimes get onward referral in that way. Uh, sometimes GPs will contact me and say, look, have you got capacity to see someone? But it is self-referral as well. Um, you know, I I work privately now and, um, you know, I'm there's information about me online. People can contact me. Um, if they have any concerns. Um, but, but this is another really important area as well, in that when we're talking about people contacting psychologists and sports psychologists, clinical psychologists, um, I, I really want people to know that they are a regulated professional. Um, and you really, when you're in a vulnerable place and when you feel ready to contact one of these psychologists, you need to know that who you are going to is qualified and regulated. Mm. And I think entering into the private world, um, I, I've been really quite concerned at times where certain titles aren't protected and awareness and understanding needs to increase around that as well. Um, 
And so, for example, you know, sports and exercise psychologist is a protected type school. You can only use that if you've trained for a certain amount of time, you've been assessed, qualified and registered, and you continue to keep on top of those skills that you have to have. Um, but performance psychologists, you know, performance psychologist isn't a protected title. Anyone can call themselves a performance psychologist, as can anyone call themselves a mindset coach or a growth coach or whatever else you see in the sporting mm, world. Okay. Um, and and that, that worries me sometimes. I'm sure that there are absolutely well-meaning individuals that have done a bit of training or some training in this and want to help others. Mm. Um, and I understand that, but I also just urge people who are struggling and potentially vulnerable to really check who they're contacting um, and make sure that they have got the right qualifications and they are regulated as well. The um, a couple of things that I'd just like to um, pick up on. So I know that you say that sometimes people need a clinical psychologist, but they end up going to a sports psychologist and there's confusion there. So people actually approach one whilst actually in reality needing the other. How do how would you advise people as best to kind of figure out and, and kind of, you know, um, make sure that they're going to see the best person suited to actually helping them achieve their needs? Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think what can get a bit confusing um, is that I'm a clinical psychologist that works with sports people, mm. <laughs> as opposed to a sports psychologist that works with sports people. Um, and I, I often get, you know, people contacting me asking for advice on what sports psychology course they should do. Um, and I'm really sorry, <laughs> I, I have no idea about that. <laughs> Um, and I think that's the thing as well, that if you've got a mental health concern and you are experiencing distress or symptoms that might fall into a mental health diagnosis, then I would encourage you to contact a clinical psychologist. That's probably the discrepancy. Um, I know arguably you could say that some athletes who aren't performing at their best may be feeling distressed. I think they probably are. Um, but they might not tick those boxes for kind of mm. mental health symptomology. When you talked earlier about, you know, the idea of dipping below that line or that, that stable base, if you like, do you think that there's still in society like a, a stigma attached to that and so that um, people may still be afraid to reach out with a fear that if they do feel like they've dipped below that curve line, let's say, that they, they, it'd be very difficult to, to get back. So would someone look at their own situation and say, well, you know, I'm really worried about myself, but I'm, I'm worried that I may never get back to the person that I was if I admit to having these problems. Like, you know, how, how would we go about encouraging people to actually reach out for that help and you know, educate them enough to that you can get back to the person that you were. It's actually probably a much smaller process than these people may think during that time of distressed thinking. Absolutely, it's it is concerning because I, I think I see it a lot in that um, there's still this sense within sporting culture that if you see a sports psychologist, that's kind of fashionable. You know, they're, they're a member of the team. You've got your tactical analysts. You've got your strength and conditioning coaches. You've got your sports psychologists. And, and they're on site, you know, at these clubs. 
they're, they're part of the team and it's it's quite fashionable and quite acceptable to, to see a sports psychologist, which is great. Um, but you're absolutely right to kind of say, oh, you need to go and see the clinical psychologist. Um, there, there is a bit of a taboo around that. And, and that's really um, unfortunate because ultimately, you know, sports people are humans. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, we, we all experience mental health and well-being concerns. Why would we expect them to be exempt from that? Mm. Um, you know, and I think the clinical psychologist, like I've never experienced as a member of staff that's on site at these pubs, um, they're, they're always someone that's seen outside of that. Um, and and there's, there's, a, there's a debate about should they be in the club or should they be out of the club? Because I think for high-performance athletes, there's a concern that if the coach gets wind that they're seeing a clinical psychologist, then could that mean that they're off the team? Yeah. So, so they like that actually I'm, I'm not at the club, that I'm not at the ground, that you know, they can come here and no one will know. Um, but ultimately, if we can get someone back to a position of health, then you know, it's, not, it's not my aim to get them uh, playing at peak performance. But ultimately, if they're in a position of health and then they want to do that, then they're absolutely in the position to do that. Um, and it happens. You know, in terms of saying, how can we encourage people to do this? I see it all the time. You know, when people's mental health is, is dipping and they're struggling, but they can come into the clinic and work on it. You know, once they're in a healthier place, um, they can go straight back out there and, and get those results that they've always wanted. I find that that's really interesting, like the difference between the two. In that I, when I when I was playing professional cricket for the, what the better word of it, fifteen years ago, is sports psychology had just started to come into professional sport, and it was a big thing. And I, I look back on it with what you're saying there, and the guys that are seeing the sports psychologist, you could you can understand them going, me now, I know I had fundamental issues that sports psychology wasn't going to resolve. So I'm trying to sort out my sporting mental state without my own mental state being in the right place to do so. So do you think it actually is more, almost more dangerous to do that than it being helpful? Because I look back at it now and go, I think that actually hindered my mental health as opposed to helping it. But do you think that's kind of a regular thing that, that might happen or could happen? I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that, that happened to you. And um, you're not the first person that said that to me. You know, sometimes athletes will go to the sports psychologist first in hope that that will be enough. Um, sports psychologists should be trained in triaging this, though, and knowing, you know, this is within my lane and what I can work on. Um, and again, that's the importance of regulation, that they should know, hang on, this is tipping over into something else. Um, but of course, it's about whether or not you were in a safe enough environment to feel that you could say, actually, do you know what? I oh, no, I, I didn't feel in a safe enough environment to say anything. I think that was the, the part of the problem. I was, I was trying to just become a professional cricketer and I was trying to almost use the mental side of things to gain an extra edge. Whereas now I'm looking back going... I wasn't in a sound state to start with to then get that 
extra yeah. bit on top kind of thing. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, psychology is an interesting thing in that as, as a clinical psychologist, we're trained in different therapeutic models. So again, when someone comes in the clinic, we're triaging and we're looking for the signs to think, right, at what level should we be going in at here? You know, what can this person work with and what do they want from us? What's the best fit for them? And it, it's a bit like um, physical health in that, you know, there's stuff that you can do for symptom control. So if you've got a headache, I always use the analogy of a headache. So you've got a headache, you can symptom control it by taking a paracetamol. But if what's causing your headache is a backache and you don't get that mm. dealt with and you're not treating the cause, you're going to keep getting that headache. So there's certain therapeutic modalities or techniques or strategies where you can kind of symptom control this stuff that might have allowed you to keep on performing to an okay standard. But again, if we don't deal with that cause and you, you don't go and see that clinical psychologist, then, then that headache or that barrier to your performance is just going to keep coming back. I know we keep, um, obviously, you know, I keep coming up with all these questions that aren't actually in the kind of questions <laughs> that we were trying to talk through. But um, something that was in my other set of questions that I know we're going to talk about in much more detail, but I think is really um, is applicable here. Um, interesting, when you talk about sports psychologists who may be tied to clubs, there, it's all, and, I, and again, I don't know, I'm certainly no expert, but is there a cause of like, it's like, okay, get them ready and get them back out there to get them to perform because I'm part of Arsenal Football Club, let's say, and it's my job as sports, their sports psychologist to have the guys performing at their peak of their ability as much as possible. And something that we spoke about previously is, and it's obviously covered off in the book, these guys, if they can't achieve that through the team, then become fearful of their own jobs. And that then becomes a huge problem, doesn't it? Because our guys then saying, oh, no, actually, I think you're fine. And, you know, get them happy and get them back out there to, in order to protect themselves. When actually that then becomes a bigger problem because they're not then protecting the best interest of the player. They're protecting their own paycheck. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a really difficult area. And, of course, you know, I can't comment on specific clubs or individuals because every individual... Yeah, Arsenal was just an example, by the way. <laughs> I don't know anything about the sports psychology team at Arsenal Football Club. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, sure they're I'm sure they're really good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but individual sports psychologists are different as well. You know, we're all humans. We take our own personality into everything we do. So, um, but... Yes, I, uh, from personal experience, I have come up against certain coaches, um, certain clubs that don't really want me involved <laughs> because they know that if they get me involved and I start talking to an athlete about reaching a position of health, if some of their personality traits that were making them really good at their sport we're tipping over into something a bit more unhealthy. And then I'm like, look, come on, let's think about this. What's going on? Why, why are we still doing this? Um, what's, what are the gains from this? And, and what's the drawback, actually, to your life outside of sport and sport as well? Sometimes if people reach a position of health, they, they might not have the same motivation yeah. to, to do what they were doing before. Um, and sometimes, you know, coaches don't want that. They, they just want their star playing back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what 
what gets sacrificed, I guess, isn't it? And but ultimately, and I think this this message is improving that actually mental health of anybody, whether you're a sportsman or whatever, that that has to, you know, the agenda now is very much that that has to be the the ultimate thing, and the rest of it has to kind of live and die by the rules of that, rather than that having to live and die by the rules of something else. Yeah. Um, yes. However, I think um, sporting culture is entrenched. It has been for a number of years run in a certain way. Um, and this is what I want to start a discussion on and, and say, you know, how have we found ourselves in this place? And it's not about blame. You know, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested as an analyst and a psychologist to say, this is fascinating. Why, why have we got ourselves here? Um, is it okay? And uh, do we need to make some changes if it's not okay? And if it's not okay, let, let's work together on that because this is a big task. So we still hear about all of these high-profile household names talking about mental health concerns, but in the main, they do it after they've retired. And, mm. you know, that, that's happening for a reason. They, they don't feel they can talk about it whilst they're still required to perform. Mm. And that, that's communicating something to us as well. Yeah, that, that leads us nicely on to talking about your new book, Skew to the Right, that's coming out in May. Uh, um, we're privileged enough to have read a, a copy uh, up till now. And did the book come about through the research that you did with the rowing team? Or was it the research that you did that led to the book? Okay, so um, probably the research leading to the book um, but I've got to be honest, um, things kind of organically happened for me. <laughs> it just kind of flowed um, in that I, I never planned to write a book. Um, I, I did this research um, at Durham University with um, a fellow lecturer there. Uh, we were interested in um, personality characteristics and personality clusters within uh, their high performance students, uh, uh, sports students. Uh, and we really wanted to roll out kind of personality assessments across all of their sports teams, um, but we we didn't um, we didn't get uh, agreement for that. So, but we did get agreement just to work with the lightweight rowers, um, and we were allowed to do personality assessments, uh, some kind of top level mental health well being assessments. Um, and also ask questions about weight management. Uh, and I think, you know, we'll probably be talking about this as a specific topic later on when we come on to talk about weight management and lightweight sports later on. And so I won't go too much into detail, but ultimately I was talking to the healthiest of lightweights and they were all kind of ticking the boxes on clinically diagnosable symptomology for eating disorders. Um, and it was, it, it's just part of lightweight culture, really, um, that I've personally been experienced to. Some people might not um, have been exposed to it, but, um, you know, excessive exercise, highly restrictive, low-calorie diets, additional behaviours um, that, that are of concern, that um, are all with the goal of keeping to that lower 
weight uh, level. Um, you know, if, if someone in, in general public came into a clinic and described those behaviours, you know, you, you'd be referring on to eating disorders clinic. But because these individuals were in a lightweight sports team, it, it was kind of like accepted. Like, well, yeah, this, this is what we do. Um, so I found that really concerning. And what was happening at the same time was I was getting athletes and sports people referred to me. Um, and, and it was kind of like, oh, I'm so pleased you're here. You know, th this has happened. You know, we've got people that are self-harming. We've got people that are um, restricting food to the extent that physically their BMI is a dangerous level. Um, and I can remember one individual um, was referred to me and wasn't even in a state to start a talking therapy because actually we had to look at their physical health first. Cognitively, oh, wow. they, you know, they had so such a low BMI that cognitively they weren't in the place to function enough to do a talking therapy. Um, wow! And that that really concerned me. Um, yeah. And it was that combination of doing the research, my own personal experience, and then the type of individuals that were starting to be referred to me that I thought, you know the reality of this, that this isn't okay. And we, we need to start to think about what's happening. We need to have a discussion about this. The book I found absolutely fascinating. And it, I mean, very early on, it's like, wham, okay, we're going big issues instantly. We're not messing about like, you know, was that, was that a conscious decision to kind of let people know very early that, all right, you're in for a bit of a meaty read here. Like, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to stick with this, there is some big issues that we're going to force you to think about and address. Um, as we spoke on the phone yesterday, Amy, I, I found it fascinating to actually, as with you know a lot of the interviews, to actually look at when when reading something. Okay, it, you know, is this something that I feel like I, I've got in any kind of small way, shape, or form? And it, I think that you know books such as yours really challenge people, and I, but I think that's a really healthy thing. For, to, to actually be reading something and to be feel challenged by it? it you know, it's interesting when I when I read that question, <laughs> I sort of thought, how, how am I going to answer this? And I thought, shock. I thought, <laughs> it, it, it's kind of the first bit of feedback that um, that someone said that they were shocked. And, and I thought that in itself was really interesting because I guess it, it, it communicates the level with which this is just what's normalised. You know, that, yeah, yeah. that was a world that I was in and you think, like, well, you know, why is it shocking? You know, is it that shocking? Did I go in too hard? Um, so, um, Not at all. I think it's great. Uh, that you ch that I, honestly, I think it's, yeah. it's brilliant because it very much says, right, okay, this is the yardstick. And, you know, these are the type of um, issues that we are going to be discussing. And rather, you know, I, I think it's great to let people know about that right from the start. Um, because then the rest of it isn't a shock, if that makes sense. Like, if, if if you talk about clouds and marshmallows and fairy cakes for the first half of the book, and then all of a sudden start, you know, hitting people with these big issues, it, it it would be more of a shock. But I think it's a really positive thing that you've you've gone in and been brave enough to say, okay, this is the first issue. There will be more throughout the book, but you know, I, I thought it was a really brave place from from an author's perspective to come from. As the expert I am, obviously. <laughs> said no whatever <laughs> I think you know I, I, I wasn't yeah I guess I am aware that some of it will be 
thinking. And some of it will be very challenging to hear um, and challenging to think about. Um, I think what I was really keen to do, though, is to present the reality. So um, I, don't, I don't want this to be a book that is sensationalized or becomes blaming of people in any way. Um, because if it does, I, <laughs> I, I would kind of think that I failed, really, if it, if it is received in that way. Because ultimately, this is about increasing awareness and, and getting people to understand what's really happening here. Mm. Um, and if, if people respond to it in that way, it would close down any discussion. Um, and I, I really want people to talk about this and to debate this and mm. say, right, okay, well, what is going on and what's okay? So I hope, I hope I've presented the reality of what I see in the clinic and mm. what I, I've seen personally. Um, I have to say that none of the people in the book are my patients. Um, that would be an absolute breach of confidentiality. These are individuals that, you know, knew that they were signing up to a book <laughs> and were happy to talk to me <laughs> for the book. Um, and and wanted actually to to talk about this stuff because they too wanted to increase awareness that this was happening. I, I, I don't. I, I certainly wasn't a. When I was reading it, it wasn't a. My reaction wasn't shock, in 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 a shocking sense. It was more that, wow, does this really happen? And that absolutely off the back of that, this absolutely needs to be talked about. Um, Rather than me going, you know, in in, in a in, in a in a shocked negative way, it was more of a, wow, th this stuff goes on. Like th this this story needs to be told. So it's more of a positive shock if there is such a thing, if that makes sense, it, or a positive um, awareness that was created of, of a subject that I had zero idea would ever have existed before. In in that sense, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, that's great that it's had that um, impact, really. And I, I had a phone call with um, Dr. Brian English um, uh, a couple of weeks ago who, who endorsed the book, who's, who's reviewed it for me as well. And it was, it was an incredibly heartwarming conversation, actually. It was, it was really nice to hear from someone who says, look, you know, it's communicating the reality. You know, he's saying he sees this as well. Mm. Seen it for years. You know, he said that it's it's not changing, and so it's it's nice to know that there's other professionals out there as well that are saying this this needs to be dealt with. It's quite a brave step from you, though, isn't it? I mean, you know, in in the sense that these the, these subjects haven't really been covered in this way before. Like, you know, you're almost putting your head above the parapet a little bit, um, which, you know, again, is a, is a brave decision. But I think only by people taking decisions of that kind of magnitude do these things start to be talked about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a little worried. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, you've got three positive reviews here. And, Absolutely. Uh, and, do yeah. and Dr. English, so, you know, unfortunately, you've given us all three copies. So we're, we're not going to buy you an island, but we, we couldn't recommend it highly enough. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I found it, obviously, I mean, the, the sports people that have, that have referenced in it, I, I, I don't know them. And, but from my own sporting experience, I could relate what they were saying to things that I saw and that I went through. And that, for me, was was the biggest part of it. Obviously, I didn't go through exactly that. I wasn't a lightweight rower or, or whatever. Definitely not. I had 
yeah, six six foot four and seventeen stone. I'm not <laughs> I'm not not sneaking in that under sixty five kilo mark, am I? Um, like I said earlier, I can remember when I was sixty five kilos. It says it on my birth certificate. <laughs> but but you know, I could I could relate to certain things in it. I had weight targets, I had fitness targets, and that I had to you had to achieve. Otherwise, you didn't play. Like that was you had to get level twelve on the bleep test, which or whatever it was, and you had to be below ninety five kilos as it was for me at the time, which is still not a light, lightweight rower, but it's is a healthy weight, but isn't easy to just go. I mean, I I rocked up one year at a hundred kilos, and I had two months to shift four four or five kilos, like, and and you've got to go right. Hang on, here we go, and so it, I think what I saw from it was not. I've been through that, but I've been through similar aspects, and you've you're exactly right. It's not spoken about. It's it's not talked about, and um, and I think it brought to light the stuff that people do have to go through to play sport, and whether that's them right or wrong is is the next level of conversation. But I I was really impressed with it and thought it was it was excellent. Thank you. So Amy, obviously this is a question that um, I think Jono has uh, stitched me up with here. You're a huge advocate of exercise and fitness, of which I am too clearly um but um but you know at times people misunderstand the difference between goals and objectives um do you want to talk a little bit about that yeah sure um i, I think you know in terms of uh Jono saying it's brave what i'm doing i'm putting it out there and you know it might shock um i'm well aware that the material is a bit uncomfortable um for people to think about but I don't want that to be misunderstood in terms of people thinking that I hate exercise and fitness because, you know, I've had this awful thing happen in the past or I've been exposed to something awful in the past. Um, it, of course, it was a challenging time, what happened. But um, I, you know, I said earlier I was a competitive swimmer when I was younger. We were a sporty family. Um, it's it's a huge part of my lifestyle now. Um you know, me and my partner love to go walking, cycling. We have a bit of a gym in the house because lockdown has required that. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, I train four or five times a week and I, I cannot advocate enough for physical activity and movement um, for general physical well-being and mental well-being. And I, I really want that message to come across clearly. Um, in that I continue to be active um, and it's a part of my life um, and I think what Skewed to the Right is about is about challenging these extreme uh, ways of relating to sport um, and the fact that you know Skewed to the Right is the hypothesis that what I'm seeing in high performance sports people is that there is a certain group of personality traits that cluster um, at the top end of high average, really. So, you know, if you remember those maths classes, Robbo, you said you got given fireman instead of accountant, so I don't know whether you're <laughs> <ever> helpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you remember the normal distribution? You know, so yeah, you yeah. line everyone up. You know, you look at height, so you've got all of, you know, people that are foot down here there's hardly any people that are nine foot up here there's hardly any and then in the middle you've got loads you've got average you know you've got five foot seven 
And psychologists do that. We measure people in terms of the normal distribution. So we look at, you know, are people high on obsessionality? Are they high in terms of their language ability? We, we do it in cognitive functioning, personality traits, and mental health. So the, the idea of skewed to the right is that we're looking at higher than average uh, personality traits or values of personality traits such as obsessionality, masochism, focus, aggression. I really wanted to do a chapter on aggression. I didn't get to do it. Um, but the, the cluster. The sequel. Yeah. Um, and, and that means that because of these personality traits, our high-performance athletes are incredibly good at what they do. You know, they need to be obsessive about sport. They, they need to be a bit masochistic. You know, they need to push through the pain barrier. And if, if they hit that wall, you know, they're not going to go very far if they think, oh, I'm going to give up now. You know, by the very nature of sport, you have to be that way. But what I'm talking about is how that can then be a bit of a knife edge. So ticking over into something a bit more clinically diagnosable or concerning. So, you know, where's the line between masochism where you're pushing yourself through pain? And that's great because you're pushing yourself through that comfort zone where it gets a bit uncomfortable, but actually that derives really good results. And that's what you need as an athlete. And where do you cross that line to say, actually, I find it really satisfying when I experience that level of pain? And I need to experience that level of pain and intensity every time I train. Um, and I'm not going to stop until I hit it. And then actually pain becomes really pleasurable. So what if I start to tip over into something like self-harming behavior? And, and this is the kind of extremes that we're dealing with. That if you're, if you're kind of high in these traits, by the very nature of that, is there a vulnerability that you're closer to tipping over into something that that's unhealthy or clinically diagnosable? You're um, doing bringing it up to something everyone's going through at the minute. Um, you're doing some amazing work with post-COVID recovery. Um, can you tell us a bit more about sort of what you're doing and, and how that came about? Yeah, sure. So um, it's 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 just a small project, really, but um, well. Where do we start with coronavirus? Um, goodness, it's China, <laughs> Wuhan, <laughs> yeah. Wuhan, I believe. <laughs> TBC. We must say TBC before yeah. the lawyers yeah. get involved. We do not want the Chinese government coming after our little podcast. That's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so um, it's impacted as all, hasn't it? And um, I think it. I was approached by um, a school sports partnership. Um, that use physical health and activity with kids for, for various games, various objectives. Um, and they had an idea that once these kids return to school, it, it's going to be a bit of a different environment that they're going back to. And the kids that return are going to be quite different to the kids that left because of what they've experienced with mm. coronavirus. Um, you know, we've all experienced challenges and there's themes through all of this in terms of loss, social isolation, uh, severed relationships, contact. Um, and really, I was asked to get involved to formulate those kids and what struggles have they experienced um, and how can we use physical activity um, and mental skills training to help them adjust 
to what they've experienced with coronavirus and to feel that they can manage and move forwards in, in this new normal <laughs> uh, that we're going to experience. Yeah. So that's a small project that we're just rolling out across the local area with, with primary school kids at the moment. Uh, amazing. I, I think that um, we, we're going to have to leave it there for now. Um, it's been incredible to listen to you, Amy. I, I think the three of us are incredibly excited about uh, the work that we're hopefully uh, going to be able to do with you in the future. A, helping people that listen to this and, and, and you know, the, t the things that we talk about with guests and, and identifying stuff so that we can help people. Um, look, guys, the, the book uh, is coming out in May. It's called Skewed to the Right. Check it out. It's incredible. The three of us were very lucky indeed to have a uh, a pre-copy or a you know if you like uh, and we've all avidly uh, read it uh, some of the stuff that we'll be looking to cover off with Amy in the future is actually diving more into the, the kind of individual stories that she told with the different um, so you know some amazing people and then Nigel Owens the international rugby referee there's a strong man in there there's a uh, cyclist Tanny Gray Thompson's in there uh, Foxy Fowler Graham Fowler uh, the ex-international cricketer uh, and it deals with everything. So uh, sexuality, um, you know, the, the work ethic, the, you know, the, the, the way that people have to drop weight to compete in certain sports and everything. And, and we'll look to go into those individually within these different episodes that we're hoping to do with Amy as we push forward. So um, for now, Amy Ziski, it's been a Dr. Amy Ziski. I haven't called a Dr. Amy Ziski for the entire episode. This is such a, such a moron am I. Um, so apologies. <laughs> Uh, I will get this right one day. I will get better at this, I promise. Um, but yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, a joy truly to talk to you. And we look forward to spending much more time with you as we push forward. So thanks for coming on. Great. Thanks for the invitation. It's been good fun. Thanks. Looking for a new cricket equipment partner for yourself or your club can sometimes be tricky with so many options to choose from. How do you make the right choice? When you want quality, value and service, there really is only one place to start. For more than a decade, Woodstock Cricket have been producing award-winning, high-performance cricket bats from their Shropshire workshop. Matched with their classy soft goods, luggage and accessories, Woodstock Cricket really do tick all the boxes. Get in touch with Woodstock Cricket and find out why many loyal clubs, players and international customers can't be wrong at info at woodstockcricket.co.uk Sports Social Podcast Network Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.